Well, my name is Chad Mary. I'm one of the student workers here at Inspire, and uh, very excited to open God's Word in the season of Advent as we enter into that waiting period towards Christmas, the birth of Christ. And I was just reflecting on what does it mean to wait, and how am I impacted by waiting? And I don't know if you can relate with me in this, but waiting can be difficult. Um, you know, as a kid, waiting for Christmas to come. You had 365 days from Christmas to Christmas, right? And you're counting it down because you knew it was coming. Um, good food, time with family, gifts. As a child, you're waiting for Christmas. But that waiting actually becomes harder when you don't know how long you're going to have to wait. And so maybe you can relate with um, going to the airport and waiting on your flight. You look at the screen and you, and you see the out to the side of your flight, it says delayed. And so you wait an hour. I was just talking to a friend about this, actually. And then you wait another hour and another hour. You know you have a ticket, you have a destination to be at, but you're waiting and it's hard. I know for our family, about four to five years ago now, we we're still living in the U.S. and we we're traveling home uh, to see family for Thanksgiving. So we lived in the state of Indiana, going down to the state of Arkansas. And it was about a 600-mile drive, uh, about 10 and a half hours with stops. We had kids, took a little while to get there. Uh, but it was going well. It was a good trip. We'd done that many times. And we got about 45 minutes outside of our parents' home uh, where that meal was waiting for us. And gridlock on the interstate, a standstill. Like, we can't move. We're in one place. And we start to wonder, how long is this going to take? Surely, you know, 15, 20 minutes, we'll be on the way. We end up waiting for five hours in the same spot without moving. People are out wandering around on the interstate, like, what's going on? It's just a, it's a very weird feeling. It's getting cold. It's dark. You know, you can't run your car the whole time because you don't want to run out of gasoline. All these things. And we're like, are we going to spend the night here? Waiting is really hard when you don't know how long it's going to take. Well, what about you? <clears throat> what circumstances in your life do you find yourself waiting for currently? You know, it could be a range of things. Maybe it is something like Christmas, which is just days away now. Time with family, time off work, celebrating Jesus' birth. You're waiting for that to happen. You know, maybe it's something bigger that you're waiting for, such as justice in the world. You read the headlines and you see it seems like things are gone crazy. The wars and the, the racism and human trafficking. There's, there's these things that are happening and you're waiting for justice. Or maybe it's health. You've just had a season of being unhealthy uh, and you, you long to be healthy. I have a friend, a good friend, her, her grandmother was just diagnosed with cancer. And now they're waiting to see what, how this will unfold. And they're longing for health. Well, our text today, when we step into this chapter of Luke, we enter into this time of waiting. So the people that Luke is writing to in this time, they've been waiting for God to speak for 400 years. Think about that, 400 years of waiting. That's a long time. The country I'm from is only 246 years old. I think a lot of history has happened in, in 246 years. That's not that long. This is 400 years that they've been waiting for God to speak. The last time God spoke was through the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament. And he had promised that he was going to send somebody to come to prepare the way for Jesus, for the Messiah. And now in our passage, we're going to see that God will speak. 
So as we move into that, let's get a little bit of the context for what's happening here. If we look back at verse 1, Luke says that he is going to give his account of the good news of Jesus, that he has done the work needed. He has gone and investigated. He has interviewed eyewitnesses. He's talked to people that saw Jesus, that walked with Jesus, that were perhaps even healed by Jesus. Luke's account was written about 62 AD, which was about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. So people would, would have been alive. They could have testified that this was true. They could have verified what he wrote down. And Luke often uses names, dates, locations, so that we can be sure, we can be confident. And he says, this is the purpose I've written this, that you could be confident in what I have written. The things that you have heard, the things that you've believed, you could be confident in. And that's what Luke gives us here as we enter into this period of waiting. Well, he introduces two character, characters to us. First, he introduces Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Luke is actually the only one of the gospel writers to write about these two. And so we pick it up in verse 5. It says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. So he gives time, he gives names, he gives places. And here's Zechariah. Who is he? He's a priest. He's of a certain division. We get a little bit more information in verse 6. It says that um, him and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, they weren't without sin, but they were devout. They were doing what they were supposed to do. They were living rightly in God's eyes. But what we soon see is that not all is right in their life. In fact, they're experiencing some suffering. In verse 7, it says that they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were very old. And so in this time of waiting, we see Zechariah and Elizabeth in this bit of suffering. This idea of being childless, especially in this culture, in this time, was seen to be a disgrace. And, uh, and um, Elizabeth actually affirms this in verse 25, at the very end of our reading today. She says, once she does conceive, she said, in these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And so she's living with this longing that she has, but it's not being, it has not been fulfilled. And there's a stigma associated with not having a child because those that are righteous would be blessed by God. And she was not blessed. So what was wrong? People would be, be asking, what's wrong? What's wrong with these people? Why is God not blessing them? So this should stop us in our own lives, stop us to, to consider what are the things happening in my own life that are not the way I feel like they should be, right? This is what's happening with them. Surely they should be able to conceive. So what is it in your own life that you, as you look at it and you wonder, has God made a mistake? Is there something here that's wrong? Maybe it's career. Maybe you're not at the place where you thought you'd be or maybe you don't like what you're doing. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe you long to be married or maybe you're married and it's difficult. Maybe you, maybe you long to have children or you have children and and you find that you can't control them, that they're going to do what they want to do anyway, and it's hard to be a parent. It's not the way it should be, right? Maybe it's health. You long to be healthy, but you're not, or a family member or a loved one is not. 
Well, just because things we experience are hard doesn't mean that God isn't still in control. Because what God's going to do here is he's going to use a very hard circumstance to accelerate his plan of salvation in the world. We're going to see it take off in these passages. So God speaks, verses 8 through 18. Let's see what God says here. Now, as as I mentioned, we're in that 400-year waiting period. But God hasn't forgotten his people. We might be tempted to think, has God just abandoned his people? Like 400 years, has he just gotten busy with other things? No. (laughs) This is actually the right time. This is just the right time that he had planned from the beginning to now speak and move forward his plan of salvation through the Messiah, through Christ. So let's pick it up in verse 8. It says, Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by Lot. This was according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord. He was going to burn incense. He was going to pray for the people, pray for the redemption of God's people. And so he was one of the divisions of priests. There were 24 different divisions. And this would have been really the highlight of his career. He was chosen to go in. So all the the priests would come, but then only one would go in and offer the the incense and pray. And Zechariah's chosen. Finally, this would have been the highlight of his life in some, some regards. Because once you got to do it, you didn't get to do it again because there were so many priests in line to do it. And so here he is going into the temple to pray and burn incense on behalf of the people. And when he goes in, he encounters something supernatural, something not usual. As he goes in, he encounters an angel. And it says in verse 12, his response is very telling. What was his response? It says that he was startled and gripped with fear. He's standing in the presence of an angelic being. And then this angelic being, he he identifies himself as Gabriel in verse 20. He begins to speak. And the silence is broken. God begins to speak to his people again. And we can rejoice that God is speaking, that he has a message for Zechariah. But Zechariah is gripped with fear, and for good reason. I think a lot of times we have this misconception of angels, right? You've seen pictures or drawings of these chubby babies with wings. That's not what he's seeing here. He's seeing something that would be frightening, maybe better described as a warrior, a warrior of light. And here he appears with a message. So God sends his message delivered by Gabriel. In verse 19, we see the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you, to tell you this good news. He is God's voice, God's messenger to Zechariah. God speaks. What does he say? Well, let's go back to verse 13 here. Let's see what he says. He says, first, do not be afraid. He comforts Zechariah. He sees his state, his condition. And then he says this, your prayer, your prayers or your prayer has been heard. These are the first words that Gabriel heard that he hears again is that your prayer has been heard. What was he praying? Well, in the line of duty there, he is praying for the people. He is to represent God to the people, the people to God. And he's praying for the redemption of the people of Israel, that he would send that Messiah But also his whole life, what else had he been praying? At least his married life, he'd been praying for a child. And here God is going to answer both of those prayers with the same answer. He's going to send a child, 
Elizabeth will conceive. Verse 13, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. It's amazing that God would hear our prayers. And as God speaks, he comforts Zechariah. Well, what will this child be like? We see in verse 14 and 15, we, we see a little bit what John will be like. That he will, one, he will bring joy to many. How will he bring joy? Well, he's coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so as he comes, he's saying he's going to tell them to be getting ready. He's coming. He's here. He's going to bring joy. He's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Verse 15 also says he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. This shows that God has equipped him for the ministry that he's calling him to and that he is distinctly called by God. Well, what is he going to do? What will this child do? Verses 16 and 17 are key verses in this passage because they're connected to the last verses of the Old Testament. So when God last spoke through Malachi to the people 400 plus years prior, this is linked to these two verses right here. Let's read verses 16 and 17. What will this child do? He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, some of this is word for word with what Malachi ends with. And so it's almost as if God, when he comes back to speak, he just picks up right where he left off. This thing is moving forward. This plan of salvation that I promised back then, it's happening now. We're continuing on. And as God speaks, that would be great joy. That would be great encouragement. And so Elijah is going to bring people back to God. Oh, sorry, John is going to bring people back to God. He's going to come in the spirit of Elijah and he's going to make people ready, prepared to receive the good news when Jesus comes. Well, if you flip back to Malachi, we can see how this is <clears throat> uh, directly related. So page 962, 962, just flip back a few pages. So these are the last words that God spoke before this 400-year silence. And he says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So you can see that he's going to send the prophet Elijah. Well, how is John described? He's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet that God used in the Old Testament in mighty and powerful ways. And now John is going to come in the spirit of Elijah. There's going to be repentance. There's going to be renewal. There's going to be people turning back to God. And when they're turning back to God in repentance, they're going to be, there's going to be um, repentance and, and reconciliation within the family, the children and the, and the parents turning back to one another. So God picks up this plan of salvation where he left off in promise because he is faithful. So we have to ask the question, if John's duty was to prepare the people to receive the Messiah, we have to ask, are you prepared? Are you prepared? We have this message. Luke has written it down for us. 
He's verified that it's true, that it really happened. Are you ready to receive this message? Maybe you're here and you're new to Christian things and Christianity and this idea of angels and is, is quite bizarre. This is not the normal experience, right? So what is it for you? What is the next step for you to be prepared to receive this message? Is it just information? Have you done some research? Have you done some reading on your own? I would recommend reading Luke's account. The reason why he wrote it is that we can have confidence, that we can have assurance. That could be a great next step to be prepared. Or maybe, as a Christian, is to receive this afresh. God spoke. His plan of salvation has come. And to receive it with joy. To rejoice that he has come. That he has come and he has, he has spoken. That he has not remained silent, but yet his plan of salvation has come true. And we can now look back and see that it has happened. To rejoice. It may be also to be prepared for Jesus' second coming. So Jesus came, and then he, when he ascended to heaven, he promised that he will return. Have you forgotten that he's returning? Have we grown lazy or complacent? We need to be prepared. We need to be ready. Jesus says that it will be like a coming of the thief in the night. Well, what is Zechariah's response to this angel's message? Verses 19 through 25. How does he respond to this good news? You know, you, you would think, being the faithful priest that he is, the way that he's described in verse 6, that he's doing the right things, he's, he's a faithful servant of God, that he would embrace this with belief. But what do we see? We actually see unbelief. In verse 18, Zechariah asks the angel, this is how Zechariah responds to the angel's message, how can I be sure of this? In other words, I think I need a sign to believe this. I'm old. My wife is old. This can't happen. There's doubt. So maybe you can, there's two different ways you can respond to him asking a question. One, you could say, isn't it okay to ask questions? Like, that's okay, right? And actually, Mary, just a couple verses later, when the angel Gabriel appears to her and says that you, a virgin, are going to be the mother of the Messiah, the Savior, how does she respond? Well, she actually asks a question too, but she asks in faith. She says, yes, but how, what are, how would that actually come about? But she embraces it. His is more of, I need a sign to know that this is actually true. And so Zechariah um, we know that he doubts as well because the angel in verse 20 affirms that. Look at verse 20. And now you will be silent. So this is his consequence for not believing and not be able to speak until the day this happens because why? You did not believe my words. So the angel is aware that he has not, he has not responded in faith. So his first response after God speaks... He would have known the Old Testament. He would have known the Old Testament prophecies. He would have known the book of Malachi. And now it's being quoted to him of what John, his own son, is going to do. And he doubts. Well, we know that later on he does believe. Um, in fact, if, as you continue on in the first chapter of Luke, at the very end, he actually names his baby, John, what he's supposed to name him. It's a sign of his faith and belief. And then he gives this amazing prophecy, this 
monologue giving complete glory to God. But in his first response was one of doubt. And so I think for us, it's to be aware that that seed of doubt is in the heart of every human. If Zechariah could doubt, surely we can doubt. And this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. If you think about the first sin, when Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent, what did the serpent say? He said, did God really say? And there was doubt planted in their heart. And so, however it is that you're, you're tempted to doubt, maybe it's doubting this, this business about the angel, right? This is new. This is strange. Can this really be true? Remember that Luke wrote so that we can have certainty of the things that have been taught. And then when he leaves the temple, he's mute. <laughs> so something definitely happened there that changed him. And then his wife does conceive and there's an actual baby. You can go verify that. If that wasn't true, that would have been shot down really quickly. Even in her old age, she has a baby. And these people were not unintelligent people. They were not blindly believing. They all knew John and Elizabeth. And, none of, and it was verified, so we can have confidence. Well, how does Gabriel respond to his doubt? We just looked at this. Uh, but in verse 19, what does the angel say? He says, I am Gabriel. Full stop. I am Gabriel. I am your sign. <laughs> in other words, I stand in the presence of God. He would have heard of Gabriel because Gabriel ap appeared to Daniel in the Old Testament. He would have known Gabriel. He says, I am your proof. I have been sent to speak and tell you the good news. And so just as there are consequences to Zechariah's unbelief, I think there's consequences as well for our unbelief. Now, we might not be struck mute as Zechariah was, but if we choose not to believe this occurrence that God has now brought his plan of salvation, that it's moving forward, that it's going to be completed in the person of Jesus Christ, if we choose not to believe that, we miss out on his plan, which is salvation in Christ. So how are you tempted to doubt in your day-to-day -day life? If Zachariah, in the presence of Gabriel, doubted, surely we will too. Maybe it's some things that we mentioned earlier. As you see the things around us happening in the world, and you see wars happening, you see these injustices, you're tempted to think, if these things are happening, is God really just? We could be tempted to doubt God's justice. Or maybe it's you have experienced unfaithfulness in relationships here with other people that you've been hurt or lied to. Or if you just look at marriage in the Western culture, that it ends half the time in divorce. So if we're not faithful to one another, it makes us question, is God faithful, right? The doubts can come in. Or maybe it's hard circumstances in life when we encounter those things that we know aren't right. And they're hard. And can make us think, is God really good? Just recently, we uh, had a break-in at our house. It was when we had workers present. The door was left open, which is not a great idea, a great thing to do in central London. And somebody walks in off the street, walks through the house, grabs a laptop, walks out. Now, thankfully, that's all they took. But the result was us feeling kind of violated. Someone was in our home. Are we really safe here? 
now we have to purchase a new laptop. God, I thought we were doing the right thing. Why does this happen? You know, even in my own heart, I have these seeds of doubt that can creep in when things, when life is hard and things don't go according to my plan. So how do we move from doubt back to belief? Because we're going to be tempted with that. Well, one way is to remember this passage, right? That God spoke and it happened. He said, the one is coming. His name will be John. He's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And it happened. And Jesus came as we get to that in the coming weeks, that he really came. So we can have confidence. And Luke wrote to give us that confidence. So God, God caused this miracle pregnancy in Elizabeth so that his plan of salvation would begin to unfold, to accelerate. John came to prepare the way for the Lord so that many would rejoice and be led back to God. So for us, let us enter into this Advent season together with joy, rejoicing that God has spoken and being prepared. So let's be ready. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is so good. It does bring rejoicing as we think that you, what you have done for us, that in our helpless state, you saw us, you heard our prayer, and you sent John to prepare the way for the Messiah. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.